All right, let's start the episode. This is Button, right? Three. All right. Two. Uh, last time we, I gave Buffy some homework. One. Do you care to share what that homework was? Annie, can I be real with you? Yeah. I forgot the homework. <sighs> Damn it! Not I again. So, I am so sorry. Your homework was to remember the plot of Lame Is. Do you remember the plot of Lame Is? I do remember. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Because that might be important later. <laughs> but first, through the magic of the internet, and specifically the website character.ai, I have managed to contact Dimitri. Would you like to con would you like to speak to, to Prince to, to the to Czar Dimitri? Oh my gosh, the Czar himself? The rightful Czar himself. Did what he do you like his death again? He did, and now he's shown up on character.ai. What would you like to ask him? Oh my gosh, I'm your biggest fan. Um, okay, uh, what sign are you? He's thinking about it. Okay. He says he's a Libra. You know what? I think that makes sense. He says it makes sense because he is the only czar who is known to be a diplomat, which is a bit doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. Based off of what I heard, I don't know if I would necessarily call Dimitri a diplomat. He also says that he was killed by a brick on Christmas. So I don't think this is the I don't think this is the real Dimitri here. I doubt. Another imposter Amogus. What else? What else you want to know? Um, okay. Uh, hmm. Okay, how many times did you actually fake your death? Okay. He's a deep thinker, apparently, this time with these questions. You know what? I respect that. Hold on. He's given us... Hmm. Holy shit. He's, he's dropped truth on us. Shit. He only died once. And oh, he, he only faked his death once. But that was as Feodor. He was the big brother the whole time. Didn't see that one coming. Oh, he's been sending selfies. Oh my gosh, drop the selfies. This is going to be riveting audio content, but yeah, here's the selfie. Uh, love it. Four stars. Image was fantastic. He's kind of got, like, the drip going on. I'm he's loving got... the little necklace piece. He's got Steven Seagal vibes. That is kind of what it's giving. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, let's say bye to fake. Alright, see you, fake Dimitri. And we can get into the actual topic of this episode. Which is the real Dimitri. You would be surprised. The, I would be, actually. The real Dimitri is Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo, what, no, two things about him. One, loves Jesus. Two, hates kings. That's his personality summed. Oh, and he likes writing books. That's his hobby on Heroes Wiki. Those were his hobbies. The guy before 
who claimed to be anti-royalty and then became royalty. Yeah, I, I, he, he did not like that guy. Actually, I don't know who he is. Did like that guy very much. Anyway, he best known for his two books, Notre Dame de Paris, which is better known in the English circle by a different name because he submitted Notre Dame de Paris, Notre Dame of Paris, to the publisher in in England. He wanted to get it translated and published in England. The publisher was like, "Yeah, nobody in English England wants to learn about like some dumb building." But you know what people monster books they like books about monsters there's a hunchback in this one so i'm just going to call it hunchback of notre dame and then he did and that's what we still call it to this day because the guy thought monster stories would sell better true story that's wild the second book remained untranslated well the title anyway uh les mis les miserables the miserable ones or the wretched or the unfortunate there's a bunch of different translations on the exact thing it's based on the June Rebellion of 1832, in which, okay, some more history time. After, the, after the Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, the French monarchy, the pre-revolutionary French monarchy was restored under, I think it was under Louis XVIII, who was then succeeded by his son, uh, Charles X. Tenth was on this very far right. He basically the, the 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 saying was that the French monarchy, after restore being restored after the Republic, learned nothing and forgot nothing. So nobody liked them. So in eighteen thirty, French monarchy is overthrown in a revolution, another French revolution. Yet and, French revolution. Another French revolution, and. Charles X is overthrown and replaced by his distant cousin, Louis-Philippe d'Orléans, who was a cadet dynasty who was known to be liberal. However, he immediately disappointed everyone else in France by kind of also being a shitty king. And so in 1832, a bunch of students and workers and former soldiers uh, rose up in rebellion in the middle of Paris and then got immediately massacred. That's the June Rebellion of 18. 32. That is what uh, Les Miserables is about. That time, the worst rebels ever just got killed instantly. So at the time of writing, Victor Hugo is living in exile Channel Islands. The Emperor Napoleon III, because at this point, France is an empire, uh, sees him as a, a subversive, radical sympathizer, things like that. So he is in the Channel Islands which are culturally kind of French, but are under Britain. So he has somewhat looser censorship laws. And while in the Channel Islands, he stays up to date with foreign news from both the United States and France and basically everywhere else that battered. And it was in 1859 that he ran across the story of John Brown. You ever hear of John Brown? No, I have not. Oh, really? John Brown was a radical preacher. I think he was a preacher. He was, he was definitely very, like, very religious fundamentalist. And he was a religionist. And in 1859, he led a small militia to raid the town of Harper's Ferry, believing that this raid 
would uh well his plan was to seize the armory at Harper's Ferry and use it to start a slave rebellion, like a mass scale slave in the South that he hoped would lead to a the creation of an independent uh, African American state somewhere in Appalachia. Uh, Victor Hugo thought that was pretty damn cool. It is based an epic. And he wrote in the London News in 1859, arguing that basically trying to get a petition going to save John Brown's life after he was defeated and captured by uh, by the cops. He writes, "This is the direct quote here." In the southern states of the Union, there are slaves. This circumstance is regarded with indignation as the most monstrous of inconsistencies by the pure and logical conscience of the northern states. A white man, a free man, John Brown, sought to deliver these slaves from bondage. Assuredly, if insurrection is ever a sacred duty, it must be when it is directed against slavery. John Brown and Burke of emancipation by the liberation of slaves in Virginia. Pious, austere, animated with the old Puritan spirit, Inspired by the spirit of the gospel, he sounded to these men, these oppressed brothers, the rallying cry of freedom. And John Brown gets name dropped in Lane Weiss among the list of like great revolutionaries and martyrs of liberty. So he so, was really an inspirational part of um, Lamez. Yeah, in a lot of ways he was. Um, there's, I, I read an article arguing that he was one of the inspirations for Jean's personality being like a very religious person who was obsessed with the idea of freedom. Mm-hmm. So, but I, the takeaway is uh, Victor Hugo did not like slavery. Pretty based. Yeah. So Les Miserables published in 1862 and translated into English by this guy Charles Wilbur in America. And it was published by Carlton Company, the, the Carlton & Co. Publishing Company of New York City. And 1862, you might know that something else was going on. The Civil War, which was, in fact, fought over slavery. So, as you can imagine, the Confederates did not like the book by this guy who wrote about slavery being terrible and how the guy who tried to free all the slaves as a hero. You might assume that, but the Confederates fucking loved Les Mis. And this what? is the topic of this episode. It's giving so, conservatism is the new punk rock. This Confederacy is the new romanticism. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, the South did not acknowledge Northern copyright laws because of the Civil War. That was like the least they could do to be rebellious. And so, the publishing hub Weston Johnston, based in Richmond, Virginia, published their own bootleg copy of Les Mis breaking the northern copyright law and just giving their own they say okay this is the direct quote from the opening introduction it is proper to state here that whilst every chapter and paragraph in any way connected to the story has been scrupulously preserved several long and it must be confessed rather rambling disquisitions on political and other matters of a purely local character of no interest whatsoever on this side of the Atlantic and exclusively in the book have not been included in this reprint. A few scattered sentences reflecting on slavery, which the author, with strange inconsistency, has thought fit to introduce into a work 
ma written mainly to denounce the European systems of labor as gigantic instruments of tyranny and oppression, it has also been deemed advisable. With these exceptions, and they are but few and important, the original work is here given entirely. So, they produce their own bootleg copy of Lamez, but with all the references to slavery being bad, just kind of awkwardly edited out. Just, go I through just the book. Imagine like huge gaps of silence where the dialogue is supposed to be. Yeah, there's this it's one scene where a character goes on a long monologue, including like the evils of slavery shall must be prevented, and he just the monologue is just like two sentences long. <laughs> wow, that was a long anecdote you just went on. What well, good thing you didn't mention slavery at all. Good, we didn't mention anything about our current circumstances. That was oh yeah. Yeah, this is a purely French book about, like, French stuff. And nothing else. And nothing else. And on Gallimaufry, we've been pretty out our, uh, our official stance on the French as a culture and as a concept. But that's going a bit far, I think. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty not epic, pretty not based. The uh, question is... Yes? Actually, go on, yeah. Um, I was just gonna say, except for, uh, their stance on slavery, which is, don't do that. Oh, yeah. Actually, maybe that's bad. Yeah, the John, Victor Hugo had a, had a W there, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, question is, who do they say translated this? Because even though union laws on censorship are still not in force, uh, it, it's a bad look to just steal your entire book from a different translator. And so they list AF as a translator. This guy, AF. And just that. No, no game name, they're just two initials. And then they talk shit about his translation in the opening. And here's the quote again. Although in the main, faithful and spirited, it's the work is disfigured by numerous errors and misapprehensions of particular peculiar some of them even of a ludicrous nature and so they say they brought in an editor you ready for this editor's name what is this man's name professor dimitri oh my god it's him <laughs> he's back dimitri in lives Dimitri lives, and now he's a confederate. No! Dimitri villain art. <laughs> Fucking villain art. He's, you've gone where I cannot follow Dimitri. We were rooting you for you. We were all rooting for you. How dare you? And then we don't also, they also don't mention who Dimitri is, just this guy, Professor Dimitri. Which we will get into that later. But first of all, and then he says, oh, but Professor Dimitri uh, had some other shit to do. So he just left halfway through. And we just had to get this guy AF to write the rest. I, my assumption is that uh, Professor Dimitri went on to invade Russia. But there's no evidence of this. And it was slightly censored by the pro-Czarist uh, officials, which still write history books to this day. Anyway. So the first chapter is original work by edit is supposedly translated by af but edited by professor dimitri so that's original translation the rest of the book is and the lame is is like 1500 pages so it's chapter one new stuff 
the rest of entirely plagiarized from this other guy's translation, from the official American translation. They just stole the work. They, yeah, they just stole it, like, word for word, bar for bar. And they published this book in, uh, five, in five parts. And it is distributed among soldiers, actually. Confederate soldiers. No fucking way. The story literally about how slavery is bad is given to a bunch of Confederate soldiers. Yeah. And here's an interesting part. This is what I'm going to the episode after. Is that they didn't know how to pronounce French. So they say the, the word uh, les miserables and just make up their own ways to pronounce it. And they call it uh, less, a few weeks, uh, less miserable. Uh, and uh, the one they give them, the one that becomes really popular is Lee's Miserables. Because they are also, under, the, under General Lee, they are Lee's Miserables. So that actually becomes a nickname among Confederate soldiers for them, Lee's Miserables, because of this book. And you can see it in, in various, like, memoirs and, and journals and diaries and letters and things of that sort. Like, you know, the whole, uh, fuck it, what's his name? The guy who did Civil War documentary, Ken Burns. Like, the whole Ken Burns documentary. Dear Martha, I've been on campaign for five years now, and I just killed a Yankee. Thinking of you. They gave us hard check. Kind of like that. Yeah. So it's like... It apparently, we're like, I was reading this book, uh, Lay's Miserables, by this friend, Victor Hugo. It's kind of long, but I like the little girl. Ugh. Yeah, I, I have, um, I have some more actions saved, but yeah, it, it's mostly like that. And later editions, as the war goes, the Confederates start to take some pretty big L's. And uh, they start, and because of the Union blockade, it's harder and harder to get paper. So they have to shorten the book, get it more bridged, add more like plagiarism from the Yankee edition, and eventually. In the south. Tor- yeah. And eventually, they have to um, stop using paper to write, and they have to. Because the paper is all being used by the army, can't import it because of the blockade, things like that. And so they print later editions of Les Mis on, on bits of raw cotton, uh, sheepskin. There is one report of them someone's printing... back. Uh, <laughs> someone's cow. Uh, <laughs> you can find it. It's like... Side of a wall. No, they did actually start using wallpaper. Printing paper. <laughs> what was the okay? So you're telling me that just for a while, like books just stopped being made. They were like, "Yeah, you guys can't read anymore." Well, you could, you can't you can read, but it has to be like on skin. <laughs> we just have to like write random shit, and it's half the length it used to be, and all of it's stolen from the Yankees. Because that was the state of the Confederate uh, printing industry towards the end of the war. Damn, they were really losing. They yeah, were they were really taking some L's. 
Yeah. Imagine taking an L so bad you have to read Les Mis on a sheepskin. That's like Stone Age shit. Bro, imagine wanting to defend slavery so bad you're willing to read a French book on the side of a wall. Yeah, that's that's how it ended up being. So <laughs> I almost was like, okay, that's that's a good decent episode of Zone. I can just flesh that out, add more sources. But I was had some questions. Who was AF? Who was Dimitri? Who were Weston Johnston? And so I did some more digging into the story. And I'd like to separate the next bit into these three parts. Who were Weston Johnston? Thomas Johnston and John M. West uh, started their own publishing company in 1861 after the retirement of John's father, George West, who was also a bookseller. So I shouldn't say like started their own. John West basically just took over his dad's shop and like brought in his buddy Tom. Uh, so West and Johnston of Richmond, Virginia, were actually incredibly big publishers during the Civil War. They half the books by the Confederacy during this period were published directly by West and Johnston, and I have a. You can actually access 33 of their books on archive.org, which I have done. I have read a few of their, their books. And it basically is divided into three categories here. Uh, Confederate propaganda. Shit they stole from Europe. Like Liam is. They, stole a, a, they published an individual chapter from Tom Brown's school days. They did a bunch more like novels and poems and things like that. And then they did a few educational works, including um, this almanac, which I've already, which includes a, uh, a bunch of shit about astrology, as well as a cure for diphtheria. Do you want to hear their cure for diphtheria? Take a handful of elder root, the same quantity of dogwood root, and the same quantity of the bark or persimmon root. Boil them with a pint of vinegar down to half a pint, then add a very little water, a small lump of alum, and a little hum, and use it as a gargle. And presto, your diphtheria is cured. They also published a school book, a math textbook for little kids. And I do want to share a couple excerpts from this one because on the introduction and the preface of this book, it ends with this paragraph. And keep in mind, this is a textbook. This is for kids in schools during the war. They got to still learn arithmetic. And it asks this question. When our savior world, he was condemned by the Jews for asking a simple question. By asking a simple question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? If anything, and if any are disposed in a similar way to denounce our work, we would beg of them to examine carefully and candidly before they decide. And to remember that, as the Messiah did come out of, so it is possible for a good arithmetic to be made in Tennessee. So of course we can, uh, of course people could Tennessee make good textbooks. What are you, a Jew? 
Jesus? Because we're basically Jesus here, uh, our, our uh, Tennessee mathematicians being of persecuted. Land mind, do you think you can solve a Confederate math problem written by Jesus? I, I feel like I could, and I did, in fact, go to public school, so. A gentleman whose daughter was married on a New Year's Day gave her one dollar, promising to triple it on the first day of each month of the year. What did her portion amount to? Wait, I'm sorry, I need you to repeat the question. A gentleman whose daughter was married on a New Year's Day gave her one dollar, promising to triple it on the first day of each month of the year. What did her portion amount to? Wait, why did they mention his daughter porn on the... Alright. See, you, you doubted Tennessee Jesus. And he made you look like one of those Jews. Do math. I graduate. <laughs> what? Like that. All right. One more time. I can do this. Okay. See if you can match Tennessee Jesus's uh, math quiz. Okay. All right. Hey. Let me see. I turned the page and I lost it. No. <laughs> okay, hold on. Give me a second here. Let me take this time to plug archive.org. It's pretty neat. By the way, they call their examples promiscuous examples, which I think is fun. Okay. Uh, wait, no, that's that's a different question about a gentleman giving his daughter money. All right. Wait, oh, I could just. Uh... Okay, here we go. A gentleman. Okay, you have a gentleman. We have a gentleman. Have a gentleman. You can name him if you like, but is not given a name. We're gonna name him Dimitri. Dimitri has a daughter. All right. Dimitriet. <laughs> Dimitriet is married on a New Year's Day. And Why do they mention this? And they give her. And they, he gives her one dollar. And promises to triple that money on the 
first of each month in the year. At the end of the year, how much money does she have? Great. So Dimitri gives Dimitriette a dollar. Yes. Yes. And promises to triple it uh, the first day of each month for one year. Yes. But does he keep his promise or does he fake his death? He can do both. He, he, he has time. <laughs> Does he fake his death to get out of giving the money? Because, well, how much money Question. is it? Because it's, I think, $33. No, 34 Because the, he just gives her $1 the first month. The, you want to hear the answer? What's, what's the answer? $265,720. You're a bit off. I don't think that's um, how math works. No, no, it, it, it's you triple it, and then you'd like triple it 12 times. You said you went to public school? Yes, I did. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, that was written weird, but whatever. I expect nothing less. From Tennessee Jesus. From Tennessee Jesus himself. But do we know if he keeps the promise? Does he actually pay her? We have to assume so, because would a math textbook lie to you? I think I think it just did. I th- uh, do you think he gave... Hold on. Do you think he faked his death to get out of giving all that money to his daughter? I wait. We have to. We have to ask. That is a lot of money. That is. Um, Can we ask AI Dimitri? Good question. Let's see. Let oh AI Dimitri, did you abandon your daughter because you had to give her two hundred thousand dollars? Let's see. Why do I have? Wait, that's how I'll ask it. Did you abandon your daughter because you had to pay her $265,720 for her wedding? And now we wait. Yes, yes, I did. And she never forgave me. I can't believe it. A very sad, unhappy, could not afford the expenses, which made a bad situation worse. After that, I made a terrible enemy of her husband, my former friend Vasily. I am glad that I can laugh about it now, but my family would never be the same. I lost my only chance to see my bloodline become the Tsar of Russia. <laughs> Such is life. And he said another selfie. That's nice. This is him looking sad about his daughter being abandoning him after he refused to pay her money. Fantastic. Fantastic work, character AI. Yeah. No, I definitely see the sad face. By the way, I, I looked into that would eighteen that would be worth uh seven point eight billion seven point eight million dollars in today's money. Interesting. Hey wasn't this an episode about Lay Miz? I think it was. All right, question two. 
AF, who or what is AF? We don't know. He has two references. I found two references to this guy, man's existence. One, in the, actually, in, in the direction of the book, Riaf. Then I found him listed again in, on, in April 1st, 1864. He lists his full name as Albert Fabre, who they say is the accomplished translator of Les Mis. The context for his appearance in the, in the newspaper, he disappears into thin air, just vanishes out of nowhere. And this is not only mentioned in the Richmond Dispatch, it's also referenced in the New Orleans, the New Orleans uh, Times, and the Wheel and Wheeling, West Virginia, but nowhere else. Now this one guy in, in Richmond just vanished. And they list it as possibility. Now, Reeling and New Orleans report it as this is how bad society is getting in Richmond, that people are just disappearing into nowhere. He may have been murdered. But the Richmond Dispatch offers the possibility that he was kidnapped by Hugh Kilpatrick. You might be asking, who is Hugh Kilpatrick? He was a major general during the Civil War. He was on the Union side. And he had a bit of reputation in the North as being, well, let's say not a very uh, capable commander. His nickname was Kill Cavalry because he had one tactic that he just kept coming back to, and that is just taking all of his cavalry guys and just fucking charging it at the enemy. And then they all died. That is what he does. The entire Civil War is just charging the armies at people at, like, the worst angle. Just running right straight into the guns and surviving the whole thing. I mean, can we really judge his technique if it worked? I mean, all those guys got died. It yeah. was, he was at the Gettysburg. He was at the Battle Gettysburg. And his, most, his biggest contribution to Gettysburg is convincing his superior officer, this guy, Elon J. Farnsworth, who, by sound of his name, should have been a, some sort of weird scientist. Thank God, that's two science names there. And uh, he... telling him a fortified position and just calling him a coward until he decided to do it. And then he does it, and he immediately dies. So that's Kilpatrick's record. Up until 1864, where he decides he's going to go and raid Richmond, Virginia. He gets within five miles of the city before, you know, charging all of his guys into a cavalry, into an into, uh, ambush, and they all die. But he did actually end up destroying a bunch of shit in the civil, in, during, in around Richmond. He burned down farms, he tore up railroads destroyed warehouse things like that so people in richmond hated him and they're a bit and they're a bit afraid of him because he came so close to actually burning their capital ground yeah and so this is a, a list as a possibility because he was having it in his mind 
I want to talk about a bit because he's also interesting. Mm-hmm. He, he little just story about him. Uh, after the war, he gets appointed minister to Chile. In 1866, there are a series of naval skirmishes between Chile and Spain. And, and Kilpatrick is sent to negotiate, to mediate between Chile and Spain. And he get, almost negotiates a peace. But the Spanish ask, well, they, they, they have a whole peace ceremony planned out. Like, that's how far they are to peace. They're like, this is how we're going to announce we're going to do all these things. And they say, first... We're going to have the, uh, Span- the Chilean ship, the Chilean flag be raised on one of their ships, and the Spanish are going to salute it. And the Spanish flag is going to be raised on one of their ships, and the Chileans are going to salute that one. But Kilpatrick dema- refuses to let the Spanish saluted first, and just refuses to budge on this issue so hard that the, the Spain just opens fire. <laughs> Like, they're parked outside of the Chilean city of Valparaiso. And they just open fire because they, they're just so pissed that this guy won't let negotiations. God. This, uh, kill, one or two uh, civilians are killed in the bombardment. And two or three Spanish sailors fall overboard. So, it, in terms of KD ratio, it was a Chilean victory. Valparaiso also had the first public library in Latin America, the Biblioteca Santiago Severin, and the first volunteer fire department in uh, South America. Anyway, Albert Faber disappeared into thin air, so I guess now we are a true crime podcast. It's just what we've always wanted, isn't it? It is. Uh, this this was the goal all along. Yeah. It's just going to get more true crime from here on out. But here's the thing. I couldn't find Albert Fabra anywhere else. The only evidence I have for his existence is his disappearance and his work in translating a book which he did not translate. Which brings me to the hypothesis. And now I haven't been able to verify this or deny or find evidence that would uh, deny this. But I don't think he was real. I think he was a fake person. I think West and or Johnston made him up to cover up their plagiarism. And I think when they realized that people were just asking where he was, they made up, they reported to the police that he had been kidnapped by these raiders who had uh, just raided Richmond and everyone was afraid of them and a bunch of people were still missing. So they saw a convenient opportunity. Mm-hmm. So this is my theory. This is my conspiracy theory about the guy who printed to publish Lamus. Never existed in the first place. I could be wrong. I want to say, if anyone has evidence as to the current whereabouts of Albert Fabra, please call the toll-free number appearing now on your screen. We, we appreciate it. His family misses him. Now we have one more question to answer. That is, who was Dimitri? We already know. We don't need to ask. But who is this Dimitri? Who was he really? His name, full name, was Alexander Dimitri. He was born in 
New Orleans, February 7th, 1805. His father, Andrea Dimitri, was uh, born in Greece during the, Ottoman, during the Ottoman Empire and emigrated to New Orleans, which is at the time of his birth. Well, at the time he emigrated, it was part of Spain, and then he got given to France, gave it to America. And at this time, Dimitri, Andre Dimitri, befriended a Spanish colonel by the name of Michael Dragon, who was also Greek. Michael Dragon, another Greek emigrant who was a fairly wealthy man in New Orleans. He, okay, so New Orleans, part of Spain, Michael Dragon joins the Spanish army and serves as part of the Spanish intervention in the American Revolution and becomes a war hero respected by both the, uh, but basically the Spanish Americans and the French. So he's pretty big. And he marries a former slave and has a, and has a daughter with her who, anyway, Andrea Dimitri marries this daughter and her name, possibly the coolest name I've ever found in my research, Marianne Celeste Dragon. That is some, that is some like magic girl animation. That really is. That's like the, the new Sailor Moon villain is Celeste Dragon. I don't know. Yeah. No, it sounds like it. Yeah. So, which is interesting thing. This is something I, I have to go into discussion about, but shows kind of the difference between American, well, Anglo-American, I should say, Anglo-American and French and Spanish attitudes towards race. In America, this would not have been allowed for a white man to marry a freed slave. But in, in France and Spain, it was somewhat more acceptable because it was the father's rank that was inherited. If it, the father was white and married a black woman, then their children would be free and considered to be um, not white, but not black either. They had this for mixed race people. So he would, so uh, Alexander Dimitri was the son, was the grandson of a former slave and a Greek emigrant. And because of that, he was considered to be a Creole. But his family, well, like I said, two years before he was born, Louisiana was bought by the United States. And there was a growing tension after Louisiana Purchase between this old Creole aristocracy, which was racially integrated, well, not completely racially more than, you know, the Deep South at this time, and new Anglo-immigrants. And eventually, uh, the, the white Creoles kind of turned on their uh, mixed-race brothers, and in some cases, literally brothers causing racial tension. Andrea Alexander is the son of a war hero. He has a good education. He goes to Georgetown University and gets a law degree. And he learn and he speaks 11 different languages, including French, Greek, Latin, Spanish, 
apparently some Native American languages too. So he's very smart, but at the time he is watching his social standing effectively deteriorate in real time just because of his race. And this comes as focus in uh, later, pretty early on in his career. He is teaching, he first teaches law at a university in Louisiana, and then is appointed a superintendent of Louisiana, uh, of the Louisiana public school system, like the superintendent of the entire state, who is essentially the first uh, non-white person to have that rank. But his nephew, uh, runs for assistant alderman in Baton Rouge, and his opponent reveals that his that their grandmother had been a freed slave, and because and this is a massive scandal, because I don't to this point they had been kind of passing as Greek, but because of this, Dimitri is forced to resign his teaching post because it, he is discovered to not actually be Greek, but to be uh, mixed race. Wait, speak, speak mysteries. And so after this, he moves up to DC and eventually is appointed a, is made a diplomat. He negotiates some treaties with Native American tribes. It's not clear exactly where or what, but at one point he is appointed ambassador to Nicaragua and Costa Rica. This is where he finds himself at the beginning of the Civil War. He is in Costa Rica. He is on the brink of negotiating some treaty, and then, holy shit, they're just fighting up there. And so he returns to the United States, to uh, America, and he's kind of caught in this dilemma where I have family on both sides. I, one side is openly hostile to me because of my race. The other side is, but, but then again, is watching his position deteriorate in real time, like I said, but it hasn't deteriorated far yet. His family still owns slaves. They are still considered the elite. And so he eventually signed with the Confederacy and the Civil And in November of 1861, he moves to Richmond. And it's at this point where he is hired to translate Les Mis into, into English because he is but he also gets another job as a clerk for the postmaster general, and so is forced to abandon the translation project. Leading, this is my theory anyway, the rest of the book to be plagiarized whole cloth from the official uh, uh, Also, one more thing about uh, Dimitri is that he marries in 1835 this woman, Mary Powell Mills, who was the daughter of the famous architect Robert Mills, best known for the Washington Monument. Isn't that something? Are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, just watch this check. Thoughts? Um, no, I mean... I don't know if I necessarily have any right now. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's just a fucking wild story. Yeah. That's, that's what I like about history. You just run into these wild-ass stories just doing random research. And so now we have our three questions kind of answered. We have two answered and 
wondered. So now it is time for the epilogue. West and Johnston Publishing broke up after the war. West became a steamship captain in Tidewater. Just literally just hopped aboard a steamship, became captain, and just sailed all over Virginia. And that's his new gig after becoming a, after plagiarizing Les Mis. Johnston, in the meantime, moves out to the suburbs in Henrico County and becomes a vestryman for a local church. Johnston dies in June of 88, West in August of 92. Their last, West and Johnston appears to have gone uh, defunct sometime in the 1890s. They have a few more advertisements in the paper in the 80s and 90s, mostly begging for donations and advertising, among other things, piano sheet music and pamphlets for a prep school. The site of West and Johnston Publishing is now an enterprise rental lot. The building was demolished, and now you can rent cars from there. Alexander Dimitri was pardoned after Andrew Jackson. He moved back to New Orleans and died in 1883. He had 10 kids, uh, two, one of which, one of his sons, Alexander Dimitri Jr., uh, died in the Civil War in a skirmish outside Georgetown. And Les Mis today is one of the most popular works in French and English. It has a, a long-running Broadway musical, got won a lot of awards, and is now decently well-known. So, I think Victor end. I don't really have a point to any of this. This is just kind of like a rabbit hole I went down into over the last couple weeks. But I just wanted you to come around, come along for the ride as I explored all the weird shit you can find online while looking up history. Oh, I am happy to have been on this ride. I'm oh, glad I'd... to know that Dimitri is out there and he's maybe, okay. Maybe he'll show up again sometime. Maybe he'll end his villain arc. Maybe he'll have a, yeah, he'll have a redemption arc at some point, perhaps. <laughs> we need to find another Dimitri in history. This has now become a Dimitri podcast. This is now the first, the, the only podcast dedicated entirely to Dimitri. Wherever you are, Dimitri, we miss you. Please. Well, I do want to say one more thing I forgot to mention is I found ad, an ad they published mm -hmm. in the semi-weekly standard, which is a Raleigh paper, a list of advertisements for their books. I do want to say this, they have the, the shittiest advertising I've ever seen. After advertising name is they advertise this one uh, humorous, humorous dramatic poem called The Royal Ape. It is a satire upon the Yankee government and is not without merit. We cannot recommend the work, however, for it is in some places grossly indecent, and we confess that such spiciness is not what we desire to see in Southern literature. We would not put the book into the hands of a child or a lady. It is near, it gotten up very neatly, and we regret that such an excellent house should have put forth such a book. They cite that art, that that review in their advertisement. Oh my god. Buy our book. It's one dollar. It sucks and it will corrupt your women folk. I think I would buy it is the thing. Would you buy it? I think I would just to look to see if I could. Oh, by the way, it's one dollar. 
Oh, one dollar. But does the dollar have to be tripled over time? It, it, it might. So you better buy it quick. Oh, I found a, a uh, let's see. Okay, I found it online. It looks like it just kind of sucks. Yeah, it's just a really long poem. Lame. Yeah, but if you're a woman folk, you will be corrupted. I okay. guess that's how you advertise. I wouldn't have looked it up otherwise. So, yeah, good on you, Weston Johnston. They got you. They got me. They got me good. Anyway, so, any closing thoughts? Arguments? Um, I think that that math question was bullshit. Um, I, I think that they were deliberately trying to trick me. Just admit that you underestimated a Tennessee Jesus. No, never. Someday, Tennessee Jesus will return, and he will judge you. Along and with... You know what? And I'm going to judge him back. I'm going to tell him that his math question was bullshit. Your Tennessee Jesus will return accompanied by his, his, his best friend, Dimitri. And they <laughs> will... And they will do, I don't know, something. What do you think they're going to do? Um, I... I think that they're going to make me give them a dollar and then multiply it over time. You better pray it's a dollar because it, it was a false Dimitri. You never know. It could be a ruble. Oh, man. Anyway, that's been Gallimore. I still am, Lanny. And that's Buffy. Buffy. Are you still Buffy? No. Damn. R.I.P. Buffy. I'm my name and identity. I'm Are you going to be? Now. Oh shit. <laughs> it's me. I am him. Well, I've been Lanny. That's Dimitri. And see you next time whenever I find some weird shit to talk about next. <laughs> Have a good one. I forgot to stop the recording.